Good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well. Uh, this morning, we are continuing in our sermon series called The Acts of the Apostles, in which we will be spending the next several months studying through uh, the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, so you have a Bible with you, or if you have uh, one of these ESV scripture journals that are still available out in the hallway, you can turn to Acts chapter 1. That's where we're going to be studying today the, the last section, the last few verses of Acts chapter 1. Uh, today is our third week in this series through the book of Acts. And so far, uh, here are some of the things that we have seen. Uh, after Jesus died on the cross, and then three days later was resurrected from the dead, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us this, that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then shortly after this, it says that when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. We call this the ascension of Jesus, where Jesus ascends into heaven, where he takes his place on the throne. We talked about that in week one. And then last week, we looked at the commands that Jesus gave before he left. And notice how it says, and when he had said these things, well, here are the things that Jesus said. One of these commands is a big one about the, about the future. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, so this is the big command that God or that Jesus gives to, to all of his followers, both then and now that we are to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus gave a smaller command. To, to the ones that he was talking to in that moment. It says that when you will receive the Holy Spirit, when it comes upon you, uh, this begs the question, well, Jesus, when is that gonna happen? To which Jesus said, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then Jesus left. He ascended into heaven, leaving his followers wondering, what in the world does it mean that we will be baptized with the Holy Spirit? We will find out about that starting next week. But besides a head full of questions, Jesus' followers are left with the command to wait. Now, I don't know about you, but, but I hate waiting. I hate to be delayed. I need to know exactly what is coming next. And I would prefer to have an itinerary so I can make sure that we are, we are keeping on time. Does anybody else hate waiting? Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was out of town, and on my way home, uh, I had a flight from Utah to Pittsburgh with a layover in Detroit. And this was right in, in the middle of uh, the, the Arctic blast that was hitting the Midwest and closing down all the airports. So, so I was worried, but I kept checking my Delta app, and it said that everything was on time. And, and sure enough, the plane took off from Utah just fine. Everything looked good to go. And then four hours later, the pilot comes on the intercom and says that Detroit is getting slammed with snow and nobody is allowed to land. So we're just going to circle around until we get more instructions. Oh, great. Waiting. After circling around for quite a while, the pilot comes on again and says that because of the weather, we're going to probably get diverted to Pittsburgh. Could it be? The Lord's face Smiling upon me, he has sent a snowstorm to push my plane to my final destination three hours early. No. 
Instead, we got diverted to Indianapolis, where we sat on the runway for several hours, and then we flew back to Detroit three hours late. When we landed in Detroit, we make it just in time to find out that our flight to Pittsburgh has been canceled and rescheduled for 6 a.m. the next morning. Great, more waiting. So as we're standing there trying to figure out what we're gonna do, we hear that our 6 a.m. flight has already been pushed back to 8 a.m. So we decide, enough waiting, it's time to do something. So we rent a car and we drive through the night and we arrive in Pittsburgh at 8 a.m. the next morning, nine hours after we were supposed to be there. Now, before you say, should have just waited. Flight was leaving at eight, you could have gotten some sleep and been home an hour later. That flight was delayed three more times before it finally landed at 6 p.m. So there, we were right but we did have to wait until all of our luggage came back. The reason why I bring all of this up is because waiting is not the most enjoyable experience, but waiting is exactly what the apostles were doing at the end of Acts chapter one. Jesus instructed his followers to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. So the passage that we're gonna look at today shows us what they did while they were waiting. So will you stand with me for the reading of scripture? The passage that we're gonna look at this morning begins like this in verse 12, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas, the son of James, all these with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted in his share in this ministry. Now, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That is our passage for today. You may be seated. So this is how Acts chapter one ends. Now, as we study through the entire book of Acts, uh, there are going to be some passages that have a lot of significant activity in them. And then there are going to be other passages that seem to have less activity in them. 
passages with details that might seem confusing, that might seem unimportant. We might be tempted to put this passage into that category. But remember, all scripture is important. All scripture is useful. So so what I want to do with this passage today is I, I want to walk through these verses and try to understand what's happening in these verses. And then what can we learn from them? So let's try to go back at the beginning of this passage and find out what's happening in this passage. Where the passage begins, Jesus has just told his followers to wait in Jerusalem after he ascends into into heaven. And all of this takes place on the Mount called Olivet or the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is only a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem, which means that they are very near to the city of Jerusalem, which is exactly where Jesus told them to wait. Because when the only man who's ever risen from the dead tells you to do something, you do it, right? So so the followers of Jesus, they head back to Jerusalem where they gather in an upper room. This is likely the same upper room where they celebrated the last supper with Jesus. And apparently this upper room is rather large because the next several verses describe all of the people that have gathered together at this time. Verse 13, names Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, and Judas, the son of James. I bet you this last guy stresses very heavily that he is Judas, the son of James. Like maybe he wears a name tag now that says, not that Judas, right? (laughs) But at this point, the name Judas has a very negative connotation. We'll hear more about Judas in in a little bit, but these 11 guys are the ones that Jesus handpicked. These were Jesus's very first disciples. They were the ones that he enlisted personally to join him in his ministry on earth. And these 11, they don't know it yet, but their enlistment in Jesus's ministry on earth is going to continue in a very important way. One that is gonna be revealed to them in the near future. Notice that these verses also say that these 11 were together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Besides Mary, the mother of Jesus, we're not given the name of these women mentioned here, but they were probably well-known among the followers of Jesus. So well-known that they can simply be referred to as the women and the people probably knew exactly who they were talking about. But along with these women, We also see that gathered in this upper room were Jesus's brothers. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about Jesus having siblings. When Jesus was born, his mother Mary was a virgin, which is why Jesus's birth was miraculous. But after having Jesus, Mary and Joseph had more children of their own. We see this in other places in scripture. There's an interaction in the gospel of Mark where Jesus returns to his hometown and the people reject him asking questions like this. Is not this Jesus, the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Jude and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? So apparently Jesus has siblings. He has brothers and sisters, half brothers and sisters to be precise. They all have the same mother, Mary, but Jesus has a different father, not Joseph, but God himself. But, but can you imagine being the half-brother or sister of Jesus? Maybe you have a sibling in your family who it feels like they can do no wrong. Well, these guys literally had a brother who did no wrong, right? 
But I think what, what, what Luke is trying to do here in this passage is he's identifying all the people gathered here to show us that all of these people, there was a lot of people who witnessed what had happened with Jesus's resurrection. That's what all the people here have in common. They were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And after you have witnessed something like that, what do you do next? Go home, go cut the grass, go back to, to life as usual? No. So all these people, they just stick around. After what they've just seen, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem. And when the guy who just came back from the dead says something big is about to happen, his definition of big must be something worth sticking around for. So they wait. And I think Luke wants us to see that there were a lot of witnesses. In fact, in the very next verse, we are told that the company of persons was about 120. 120, it's a lot of people, especially in one upper room. Can you imagine answering the door in this upper room at this time? You hear somebody knocking on the door, so you open it up and they say, hey, yeah, I, I, I'm here for the just saw a dude come back from the dead meeting. Is this where it is, right? Can you picture these guys, 120 of them in the upper room waiting per Jesus's instructions? We're told that they devoted themselves to prayer, but, but, but what else did they do to occupy their time while they waited? Notice how Peter appears to take charge in those days. P Peter seems to be the leader of all the followers. So here in chapter one, when they're told to wait, it almost feels like Peter's getting antsy. Like they need to be doing something. Like Peter seems like the kind of guy who would rent a car and drive all night rather than wait in an airport, right? I mean, Peter is the only guy who stepped out of the boat when Jesus was walking on water. So Peter is kind of a doer. So while everybody is waiting in the upper room, Peter decides to do something. And the something that Peter decides to do is concerning Judas. Now, if you remember Judas, he's one of the 12 disciples that Jesus hand-selected to take part in his ministry, but Judas became greedy. We're told that he used to be in charge of the money purses where he was skimming to line his own pockets. But worse than that, Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. After Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, the same meal that we now refer to as the Last Supper, Judas shows up under the cover of darkness, leading a bunch of troops with him. And then Judas approaches Jesus and kisses him on the cheek to identify Jesus to his enemies. Uh, these troops, they then arrest Jesus, which begins a series of events that ultimately result in Jesus's crucifixion. And Judas, he, Judas did all this. He, he betrayed Jesus like this for 30 pieces of silver. Because of this, Judas has become infamous. I mean, nobody names their kids Judas anymore, right? because the name Judas has become synonymous with traitor or betrayer. Like even today, if somebody calls you a Judas, you know exactly what they mean, even if you've never cracked open a Bible in your entire life. That's how infamous the betrayal of Judas was. In, in verse 18, Luke provides some gory details about Judas's fate. Like it says, he fell headlong and he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. It's gross. You might be thinking, wait a minute. I, I thought the gospel of Matthew said that Judas hung himself. What's Luke talking about here? 
Well, scholars believe this is not a contradiction. It's actually additional information. What likely happened is that Judas hung himself in an abandoned field and neither, uh, either nobody saw him or nobody wanted to be associated with him. So he hung on a tree long enough that either the rope broke or he was left hanging long enough that his body became bloated. And either way, Judas died by hanging and then ended up like this. And this field, uh, Judas didn't purchase it himself, but it was bought with his 30 pieces of silver and it was bought in his name. And that's how this field came to be remembered as the field of blood. But, but all these details about Judas, they're not the point of this passage. The, the point of this whole passage is about finding a replacement for Judas. So, so Peter gets up and he lays out the criteria by which a replacement should be considered. The replacement would need to be one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So apparently the 12 disciples were not the only people who had been following Jesus around throughout his entire ministry. There must've been others who though they weren't counted among the 12, they had accompanied them through everything. And they had accompanied them since the, the baptism of Jesus. That's what the second requirement is. The replacement needed to be familiar to the people and the apostles, but also needed to be counted among them from the time of Jesus's baptism until the time of Jesus's ascension. And with these criteria, there were at least two candidates who fit the bill. These candidates were Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice. Dude's got a lot of nicknames and then Matthias. And these two candidates, they were brought forward. And it says that they prayed and said, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And that's the end. That's the end of the section. That's the end of the chapter. So what are we supposed to do with this passage, right? What do we learn from this section? Why is this even in the book of Acts in the first place? Well, this section is not included for the sake of Barsabbas or Matthias, because after this replacement account, we never hear from these two guys or about these guys in any way for the rest of the Bible. So then what is this passage supposed to teach us? It's supposed to teach us something about, about uh, decision-making? Are we supposed to see right here that they, that they cast lots to try to figure out what God wanted them to do? Is this what we're supposed to do? Casting lots uh, was a practice in their culture where they would take these wooden dice and then they would roll the dice or cast the lots. And depending on how they landed, that would determine your decision. This is what we're supposed to learn from this passage. When you're deciding which house to buy or which job to take or which person to marry, are we supposed to whip out some dice and hope for a seven? Is that what this is teaching us? It's interesting to note that after this event in Acts chapter one, the casting of lots is never mentioned again in the Bible. So, so I don't think this is meant to be a model for how we as Christians are to make decisions today. In fact, here is what one commentator writes about this passage. He says, the New Testament nowhere instructs Christians 
to use a method similar to casting lots to help with decision making. Now that we have the completed word of God, as well as the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us, there is no reason to be using games of chance to make decisions. The word, the spirit, and prayer are sufficient for discerning God's will today, not casting lots, rolling dice, or flipping a coin. So this commentator cites three reasons why we as Christians today don't make decisions by by casting lots like the apostles did in this passage. And those three reasons are the completed word of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer. Now, now we've already seen in our passage that that all of these followers of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 says that they devoted themselves to prayer. But when it comes to these other two things, in Acts chapter 1, these guys don't have the completed word of God and they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit yet, which introduces us to an important question that we need to repeatedly ask ourselves as we study through the book of Acts. And that question is, is the passage that we are reading in the book of Acts, is the passage uh, descriptive or prescriptive? Prescriptive passages are, are events or practices that are prescribed for all Christians in all times. Whereas descriptive passages describe events that happen to specific people at specific times. Because the book of Acts is a history, as we study through it, we're going to have to wrestle with the tension between description and prescription. In the case of casting lots, Christians in our day and age, we are prescribed to make decisions by uh, relying on the completed word of God and the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us and through the power of prayer. But in Acts chapter 1, Luke is describing specific uh, events where these specific apostles made a specific decision because of the specific time that they were living in. They didn't have access to the complete word of God. They didn't have access to the Holy Spirit. So this is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Does that make sense? The difference between prescription and description? We need to keep that question in the back of our minds as we study through this book. Now, even though the passage that we're looking at today is describing events that are not prescribed for people like us, I think this passage is also describing something that is very helpful and informative to us. And that is the importance of the apostles. For the remaining 10 minutes of this sermon, I want to show you why the apostles that we've been reading about today why they are important to us. Remember a couple weeks ago when I said I cut a bunch of charts and graphs out? Well, I brought a couple of them back. If you ever wondered, where did the books of the Bible come from? Well, when it comes to the New Testament, the answer is the apostles. And if you've ever wondered, why do we have these books and not other books? Well, when it comes to the New Testament, the answer is the apostles. So even though the apostles didn't have the completed word of God in Acts chapter one, the apostles are the reason why we do. Let me show you what I mean. Notice in our passage in Acts, when they were praying for a successor for Judas, they make a distinction between taking part in this ministry and the office of apostleship. A lot of people were involved in the ministry that was going on in the early days of Acts. I mean, there were 120 people in that upper room. But when it comes to apostleship, there was only 12. 
Back, back when Jesus called his 12 disciples, Mark tells us that Jesus appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. So this role of apostle, it's not a role that anyone can aspire to. It is a role that only 12 were called to, the same 12 that we've been reading about in Acts chapter 1, with the exception of Judas being replaced by Matthias. And after replacing Judas, not only do we never hear about Matthias again, we also never hear about any other apostles being replaced Church history tells us that, that the leaders of the church after these 12 apostles, they clearly recognized that these 12 had an authority that was not repeated after them, not even today. So what was so special about these 12 apostles? Well, for one thing, God was working through these 12 apostles in such a way where people associated what they were doing with the very work of God himself. God working through the apostles is going to become very apparent in Acts chapter 2. We'll start seeing that next week. But just to give you a teaser, this check, checklist that we looked at earlier, in Acts chapter 2, the apostles are going to be able to check this one off the list. In Acts chapter 2, the apostles will experience the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of Acts chapter 2, we read that all the followers of Jesus— and by the end of Acts chapter 2, there's going to be a whole lot more of them. But all of the followers of Jesus at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that they all devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So God has chosen to work in and through these 12 apostles in such a way where being devoted to their teaching is actually being devoted to God himself. You see that? You see the kind of authority that these 12 apostles were given by God? And this authority is going to increase as time goes on. Time is something that we need to remember when we are studying through the book of Acts. Remember, Luke and Acts are a history. They're describing events that happened in time and space. So, so for all of you visual learners, here's a timeline of the first 60 years of the first century. Jesus' birth, somewhere around here. Jesus' crucifixion is somewhere around here. And then Jesus' ascension is shortly after that. And then remember, Dr. Luke told us that his first book was all about what Jesus did on earth in his ministry. And then Luke's second book covers everything that happened after starting with the ascension. So this is the timeline of Luke's writing, roughly 60 years in the first century. And if Acts chapter two happens right here, God brings his promised Holy Spirit to his apostles, and then all of the followers devote themselves to their teachings. If this is what happens when God first starts working through them by his Holy Spirit, how much greater is their authority going to be after God keeps doing it for many years? By the end of the book of Acts, God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, has been working through the apostles in such a mighty way that not only are all the followers of Jesus devoted to their teaching, but Ephesians tells us by the end of the book of Acts, it says that these apostles are the foundation by which the entire church throughout the world and throughout history is built on. What does this mean? How can the teachings of the apostles become the foundation for the whole church? Well, the apostle Peter gives us some insight in our passage today. 
before receiving the Holy Spirit, Peter recognizes that the Holy Spirit worked through King David to write scripture that was recorded in the book of Psalms. You see what he says? He says, the Holy Spirit spoke through David to write scripture. Well, by the end of the book of Acts, the same Peter writes that through the Holy Spirit, God uses him and the other apostles to write scripture as well. Peter says it like this. He says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word carried along, it's the word used uh, uh, of a sail on a boat. Though the boat is the one moving along the water, it's the wind in the sails that carry it along. In the same way, Peter is saying, it is me who is writing, but my writing is carried along by the Holy Spirit. The apostle Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The word breathed out is the same word for wind or spirit. God's Holy Spirit has breathed out all the words of scripture through the writings of the apostles. And how do these apostles know what they're supposed to write? Well, Jesus himself made this promise to the apostles. He said, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So once again, it is God's Holy Spirit working through the apostles so that they can learn, remember, and record all of the writings that we now know as our New Testament in our Bible. Do you see that? Take a breath, stretch out a little bit. That was a lot, right? Now, the last thing I want to show you is how the importance of the apostles, how exactly they were involved in developing our Bible. We only have time to talk about the New Testament, but when it comes to the 27 books that make up the New Testament, all of them are either written by an apostle, sourced from an apostle, or authenticated through an apostle. Let me show you what I mean in four minutes. Start your clocks. Here we go. Here are the 27 books that make up our New Testament. And these 27 books are written by nine different authors. And of these nine authors, three of these guys, Peter, John, and Matthew, three of these guys are mentioned in our list of apostles that we saw in our passage today. So these guys are responsible for writing eight books of the New Testament. Now, when we get to Acts chapter 9, we're going to find out that Paul is considered an apostle even though he's not listed among the 12. We'll talk all about that when we get there. But since we're not there yet, our trustworthy apostle Peter, he tells us this. He says, our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you concerning the wisdom given to him. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. You ever read the book of Romans and thought to yourself, what in the world is he saying, right? Peter's like, join the club, man. Paul's deep. But then he says, in his writings, some people try to twist the, twist the writings as they do other scripture. The thing we need to take away from this is that the apostle Peter recognizes the writings of Paul as scripture. Paul was unanimously accepted by all the other apostles to be an apostle, which is why the 13 books that are, are, are written by Paul are included in our New Testament. Now, the remaining five books of the Bible. None of these are written by apostles, 
But these books were accepted because the authors worked so closely with apostles that their writing were considered to have the same authenticity and authority. The book of Luke, written by, the book of Luke and Acts, written by Dr. Luke, he was a close associate to many of the apostles. And we're going to find out in Acts that he actually traveled around with the apostle Paul for two years. So we can add Luke's writings to the books because they were sourced from and authenticated through apostles. Now, history tells us that Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. So the gospel of Mark was recognized as scripture because it was sourced from the apostle Peter. The book of Hebrews Though it's anonymous, it was accepted by everyone in the first century because the evidence showed that this person, whoever they were, was a close associate with Apostle Paul. So it's in. And then the last two books are ascribed to Jesus' own brothers. Neither one of these two were called an apostle by Jesus himself, but because of their close relationship to him and their work in the church in the first century, they were both given the same authority as the apostles. Paul tells us, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So because of that, James is included in the Bible as well as Jude. So there you go. Why are the apostles important? Because through the apostles and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has given us the Bible. And every book in the New Testament is either written by an apostle, sourced from an apostle, or authenticated through an apostle. So now you know. Hope you wrote all that down. Because now when you're watching the History Channel and someone says, oh, we found a new book of the Bible, and you wonder, why is that not in our Bible? Well, now you'll know. See, they're not written by an apostle. It's not sourced from an apostle. Or it was written at a time where there were no longer apostles to authenticate it. These apostles are the ones that God called to be the foundation of the church. I know that was like drinking from a fire hose. So I just wanted to show you that it is important that we have the apostles. I think that's why Luke put all of this in here. And I hope this morning in this little section that seems insignificant about replacing Judas, I hope that we have seen that the God of the universe went to great lengths to work through specific people throughout history by his own Holy Spirit so that people like you and me can have certainty about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Do you believe that? Will you stand with me as I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we come this morning opening up this book of Acts, stepping into the pages of history. We believe that these events actually happened, that these are about people who lived and breathed like we are today. The kind of people that you chose to use for your specific plans in the world, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that is alive today working in us, you worked in these individuals so that you could hand down the events that actually happened and we can trust them as we open up our Bible. God, we thank you that you uh, work so faithfully through your Holy Spirit, through time and space, through these individuals. God, I pray that as we read these words that are breathed out by your Spirit himself, that we would, we would heed them and we would, we would wrap our lives around them. But even more than that, we would know 
that the same powerful spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that, that, that is the, the author behind every word in these scriptures, that is the same Holy Spirit that is alive in us, helping us to, to have the power to live by them. So we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.